Are we having fun yet? It's kind of a modified salad spinner effect in the room as the retreat goes on. More and more people kind of find places in the back, along the wall. (coughs) What's that about? There's a lot of ways to look at our practice. It's like a gem. There's many facets that we can look into and discover different things. And actually, through each facet of this practice, we can really discover the whole Dhamma. And one way to perceive of this practice, if we boil everything down, The practice is designed to solve one problem, and that's clinging. Sounds very simple. Um, This from the Buddha. There is in taking things a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether, above, below, around, and within. It makes no difference what it is you are grasping at. When a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Talked about Mara a little bit last night. So as your samadhi deepens, and even if you've been struggling a lot, your samadhi is deepening a little bit relative to what your samadhi is like in the multitasking world. It's becoming a more functional tool, a tool better able to see clearly, better able to penetrate into your experience, better able to understand. And when you're looking into your experience, you invariably come to understand suffering a little more. You notice what causes your suffering. With your enhanced awareness, you're able to see more subtly all the ways that you cling. All the manner of the ways that you you cling to aspects of this creation. It's been said that suffering is like rope burn. You think about it, you hold on to a rope that's swiftly moving through your hands, what's gonna happen? Ouch. But as you practice, you you begin to get it. You begin to understand this clinging. You watch yourself holding and grasping here and there and, 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 and how that hurts. And that ultimately, clinging doesn't create anything but agony. So as the mind begins to steady, even just a little bit, along with this increased clarity of seeing, you start to have these moments of, a little moment here and there of relief. As these hindrances begin to relax a little bit. And that relief, if you stay with your practice, keeps increasing and increasing until it crosses over into what feels like joy. And maybe some of you have had a few moments of relief, a little bit of joy as your mind begins to gather somewhat. So let's take a look at what happens with the mind in these, intermittent, in, in these intermittent moments of relief and joy, and especially when they begin to grow. Fully ripened, they're called the five jhanic states or the five jhanic factors. Marcia talked about them the other night, and it's worthy that we go over them again uh, tonight.
you've been practicing for a few days, I think you may have a better feel for them. Vitaka is the capacity, the first one, vitaka. It's the capacity to aim or direct your attention at a particular perception. It's applied attention. It's, it's the directed thrust of the mind. It's, it's precise attention like hitting a baseball, a tennis ball, or when you, when you take a, a, a flashlight and you, sign it, you shine it on some object in the dark. It's that initial connection with that. Or it's a precise turning of the mind towards the breath, or towards love and kindness, or towards compassion, or to the quality of renunciation. It's like striking, it's like striking the bell. It's not you know, waving this around and missing it. It's that, it's that moment when we make that connection. Vitaka is a connection. And in terms of the breath, it's that moment when, we, when we're able to find it. Sometimes we can't, but it's that moment we're able to find that breath uh, at that anapana spot. Vitaka has the, has the capacity to counteract sleepiness. Uh, and it's logical that it does, it does this, because when a vivid connection is made uh, with, with the meditation subject, there's really no room for those dull energies like uh, boredom or sleepiness or sluggishness to take hold. There just isn't room for them to happen. Uh, Vitaka has an enlivening quality to it. You know, it's crisp. It's that moment of connection. The second aspect or factor uh, of, concent- of a concentrated mind, a mind in samadhi, is vichara. And it's the close sister to vitaka. It's the sustaining of that connection. It's very simple. Um, Vachara has the ability to stay with the meditation object. It's when you're able to be with that movement of the breath as it moves or slides over your, your object of meditation. It's the quality of mind that, that stays within that area. It may move around a little bit, but it's staying. It's, its major quality is that it stays continuous in some aspect of that area. The char is like the reverberation of the bell. That sustain. We're there, we're there, we're there with it, connected. With regards to the breath, Vichara allows us occasionally to actually be with the whole turn of the breath, the beginning, middle, and end of the inhale, the beginning, middle, and end of the exhale, the whole cycle. So Vichara is holding the attention where we want it, allowing concentration to deepen some more. And it has, the, it has the capacity to dispel doubt. And it does, this, uh, it does this by sustaining that attention, that contact, long enough where we actually become intimate with our object of meditation. And so the, the, any, any energies of confusion or uncertainty, they're not able to take hold because there is the connection there. The mind does not get clouded, it is connected. The char just doesn't back away from the subject, it's just staying, staying right there, it's hanging with it. So we've got vitaka, which is that initial connection, and then we have vichara, which sustains that for a period of time. Those are the, those are the first two aspects. And as we 
and as we're getting a, a little more of that quality or, or power of vichara, it has a kind of cozy feeling to it. And you may have noticed that even if you're able to string together just one breath, maybe two breaths of, of calm awareness, that there is a, an, a, a feeling of some lightness, a little bit of pleasure starts to, starts to seep in with that presence of mind. And that's that brightness, that alertness, uh, kind of invigorates the, the body a little bit. It's very resting, but it's, there's an alertness there. And that's piti, P-I-T-I. That's the third factor that's coming into play. It's described in various ways. Um, rapturous interest, rapturous joy, maybe just plain joy, uh, enthusiasm, zest, delight, happiness, bliss. All of those kind of convey a flavor of this piti, this that is starting to rise up, the, the fruit of Vitaka and Vichara. Now, the, the experience of PT can range from, from, seems like just a kind of maybe a quiet internal smile all the way to um, intense pulsating pleasure uh, that frankly can make orgasms seem like nothing. It's that, it can be that powerful at times. And it's pervasive, it's head to toe. The whole body is experiencing this. And sometimes it even can feel a bit much. You know, you, if it comes on strong, you may have the, the sense of, well, oh, this is very pleasant, but yeah, let's, let's you know, it's a bit much. And PT, it grows naturally uh, by just resting the attention on our meditation object over time. And as you gain experience with PT, uh, it's not going to, the, the intensity of it will not throw you off in any way, and you'll be able to be with it in a, in a, in a very kind of matter of fact manner. But it's the natural joy of a concentrated mind. It's a natural pro progression of what happens. And what happens, what makes it, makes it really um, quite lovely, is that this rapturous delight, which is combined with an interest, you're starting to get very interested in this phenomenon that's happening, uh, it fuels the ability to sustain the concentration even longer. The mind, the mind gets more and more cohesive. And, and that joy and that interest, it draws these mental and physical energies together and concentration improves to a greater and greater degree. So the PT increases and increases as you sustain this concentration. And one thing that you'll notice that when uh, PT arises or starts to show up, even in small doses, uh, your motivation to practice increases. You start to feel a little bit of that joy, a little bit of that uh, delight. And so you're just inclined to practice more. And when I think about the Buddha, how he, how he emphasized samadhi practice with his students, you know, it dawned on me that it, it was just another brilliant teaching technique by a master educator. Okay, we're going we're gonna to have the students learn ways that are going to bring delight into their mind, joy. Well, they're going to want to practice more and more. They're going to want to keep practicing it. And the Buddha knew that this is tuning the mind, strengthening the mind, so that then they can begin to do the, 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 uh, the work of wisdom, the work of examination and exploration of, of experience. 
So it's, a, it's just a beautiful system of training. And as you can imagine, PT is certainly an antidote to any kind of aversion. When you're drenched in joy, uh, it's going to be kind of difficult to generate ill will, any kind of anger, guilt, shame, fear, all those things are, they've gone by the board. Uh, but there's more. Rising with piti is sukha. It's another alluring factor of this concentration practice, and they pretty much come up together. They're hard to separate out with discernment. Um, and it's usually translated as happiness, as peace, pleasure, ease, joy, contentment. It differs, for, it differs from PT in several ways. It's less energetic. It's quieter. It kind of has less activation to it than PT. Uh, most meditators describe it as smoother, very gratifying, very, very gratifying, but smoother than PT, which sometimes can be pretty intense. You can also look at it as somewhere in the middle of, you've got PT over here that sometimes has some very intense pulsating activity to it. And then on the, out here, you say you've got kind of deep, mature, calm equanimity, stillness. This is, sukha is, is in the middle. Um, so you, you get the feeling of the contingency here, that, or the, the continuum that we're playing in. And when sukha is strong, everything feels okay. Everything feels great. Your whole phenomenological field, your, your all, the, the, the total field of awareness um, is infused with this contented happiness. I mean, it's like the air you breathe, everything. And when sukha is strong, you might hear the bell and you just have, when you're meditating, and you just have no inclination to get up. Why would you get up? You know, it's like, what could be more satisfying and interesting? Tea, food, not a chance. So sukha is the antidote for restlessness. And when it starts to arise, thinking settles down a little bit. You'll notice that there's no obsessive planning or agitation in the mind. Somehow that's relaxed out. So the mind starts to, to really enjoy the delight of this settling in. So we've got everything coming together here in the mind. These mental factors are, are, are uniting. Everything's all lubricated with this joy and interest. And then the mind starts to, to, to really become one-pointed. And that factor is the fifth factor of samadhi called ikagata, one-pointedness. Um, it's, it's sharply focused on a, minu a min minute particle or section of, uh, of experience. It locks down on the, on the chosen object completely. It's, it's like a riveting attention, the, and it stills the mind. The focus is unshakable and unwavering. And, and the connection is so strong, the mind does not wander. All the hindrance energies are rendered impotent. Ekagata uh, is that strong. You can't even smell the hindrances at that point. Temporarily, they're rendered. Uh, impotent. Now, ikagata sounds a lot like vichara, that sustained, uh, that sustained application or that sustained attention, and it, and it is in that sense, but it's, uh, it's much steadier. There's no wobble. There's no kind of even slight movement of the mind. Um, you know, we, we talk about vichara as a bee buzzing around inside a big flower. You know how all the stamens are in the flower and the bee buzzes around and picking up pollen and all the different aspects there. Um, but ikagata is different. 
It's like a post, a steel post cemented into the ground. Doesn't move, doesn't waver at all. Ikagata is a Pali word that, that has a compound meaning, and one part of the meaning is one peakness. Uh, the aga, the aga part of the word um, has to do with uh, the summit of a mountain um, or the summit of experience. So this isn't any old one-pointedness. This is a singleness of focus that's uh, the utmost. It's sublime. It has a feeling of certainty, stability, clarity. And at that point, attention is completely under, un, undifferentiated from the object. There's total union, there's emerging. And as you can imagine, Ikagata has the ability to transform the energy of desire. Because um, desire, you know, is that mind that's moving out moving around and grasping, looking for things to satisfy it. But with Ikagata, there's no wanting anything. Nothing is lacking. There's no felt sense of deficiency. Desire is completely absent, kaput, not there. So if you stay with this concentration and uh, and it deepens, thoughts become wispier and wispier. There's no rooting to them. They don't pull you off your object. They may still be moving through, but they don't have any staying power. And as concentration continues to deepen, the, the thoughts get further and further apart until ultimately, for all practical purposes, they stop. For a while. So this one-pointed, bright, clear awareness infused with joy and contentment, it continues to gather energy from itself and you enter jhana. Now there's a lively and interesting debate about, well, when are you in jhana and when are you not in jhana and what is it? Um, my own personal feeling about that debate, it's an interesting debate, uh, is just not to worry about it. Just suffice it to say that it takes care of itself. If you have the intention, you have the energy, and you have the devotion to, to develop your samadhi, the cultivation of samadhi, you will benefit, guaranteed. Whether it is jhana according to teacher X, Y, or Z, immaterial in my mind. Just keep practicing. You'll find out. But I do like the increased discussion about it because it, at, uh, uh, not so much what jhana is and what it isn't, but I like just the, uh, just the discussion that's taken place now in the West about it because it highlights the importance of cultivating a, a, a steady, more still mind. And, and I think it's important. Okay. Now let's get back to just what else is going on in this, in this mind. And it's said in sections of the, of, of the canon that a fully blossomed mind in jhana has actually 34 mental factors in it. They arise simultaneously in concert, very subtle. Um, which includes the five that I just mentioned. And I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with all of them. We're not, going down the, we're not going down the list. But I want you to hear some of them so that you get a feeling for uh, the specialness of samadhi. It's not just concentration. You can, you can find a really good cat burglar, somebody who knows how to climb a building and jiggle locks, and they're very concentrated, and they can get in and out of a place while people are sleeping in the next room, they're very concentrated, extremely. But they don't have samadhi. Samadhi has a lot of other elements to it. Um, and here's a, little bit of the, here's a little bit of the list to give you a flavor. So I just want you to sit back and see if you can taste the, the flavor of each of these. 
Some of them are very subtly, very subtly different. So in a mind that's experiencing jhana, uh, there is energy to it. There's a, there's a kind of energy to it. It's a steadfast energy, supporting energy. It's called virya in Pali. There's also a wholesome desire, a desire to want to be with the meditation object. It's called chanda in Pali. It's an interesting one. There's faith in it, faith in the training, faith in the practice. It has a, it has a, a flavor of faith, and that's called sada in, in Pali. And of course, there's mindfulness, the ability to not forget our object, to forget what we're doing, to kind of stay with it, stay on task. And in a mind that's experiencing jhana, there's conscience. That's, that's an interesting one. The uh, cat burglar doesn't have that. Um, that's a kind of conscientious scruples uh, about not misbehaving. That's part of it, too. And that's called hiri in Pali. And then there's moral shame. And you think, ugh. Don't, don't necessarily want that. But it's a, it's a, it's a dread, um, it's a flavor of dread uh, that, uh, from committing any kind of misconduct. So there's, there's a slight difference between conscience and moral, moral dread. And that's called otapa. There's non-greed, which is really non-attachment in all its forms. That's Aloba in Pali. There's non-hatred. So there's no harshness in the mind of, of jhana. There's a soft, loving friendliness there. It has a flavor of that. That's called adosa. There's equanimity, a, a nice evenness in the mind of jhana. And it's described as, as the nature of a mind that doesn't go to either extreme. It's very balanced. Some others, we've talked about, there's tranquility of mind. There's another one, there's lightness and agility of mind. It's a light, agile mind. It's a flex, and there's flexibility, elasticity in the mind. There's adaptability, ability to change. There's wieldiness. There's a, char- there's a, a mental factor they call um, proficiency of wholesome deeds. And that's, that's an inclination to, to be charitable. Proficiency of wholesome deeds. There's rectitude of mind. That's a mind that has the energy, the capacity, that it will not and cannot engage in any pretense or deceit. So I think you get the picture of what uh, what the factors of jhana are in the mind. It's this beautiful conglomeration or, or, or mosaic of really wholesome characteristics. I mean, bare concentration is wonderful, it's great, and it aids us in all kinds of ways, and it's terrific, uh, but it isn't samadhi. When, when studying with uh, Pao Aksayada, uh, yeah, last year, uh, I was at the Forest Refuge for five months, four of those months studying with Pao Aksayadak, and we were doing this kind of training every day for four months. And one of the fun games that he had us play when he determined that our concentration was strong enough was to discern each and every one of these characteristics of mind by going into as deep a state of concentration as we could into jhana of some form or another, and then coming out of jhana and then looking for one of these, like rectitude, and then feeling into that, and then going back into jhana, and then coming out and doing the next one, all 34 of them. It was challenging, but it was really a lot of fun with a mind that's bright enough and clear enough to, to, to determine what, that was go- what, what was going on. 
in, with jhana, as it's developed, um, the one-pointedness is so powerful that there's not, an, there's not an analytical component when you're in there. You're not discerning things. You are, you are merged. Um, so you have to, in order to analyze a situation, you really kind of, in a way, back off the threshold of that much concentration. But when you're coming back off that threshold, you have a mind that is rested, restored, just, you know, ready to go. This from the Buddha talks about a mind in, in samadhi. When her mind was concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, she directs it to the true knowledgeist. So he's talking about the mind being a precision tool at that point. It's ready, willing, and able to do, where, to do whatever we ask it to at that point in service of insight, knowledge, compassion, wisdom. So that's just a little sketch of, of the possibilities and of all the mental factors that are, that are there as we begin to concentrate and begin to uh, gather the mind together. And they're temporary like anything else. They come together just like our sacred assembly. We come together and then after a while it kind of dissolves away again. Um, so we've been talking about this path towards liberation and freedom, and these are um, lofty and wonderful possibilities. But I want to speak to you uh, some in, in this last part of this last part of this talk about some of the um, important benefits of samadhi as we work our way along the path, the benefits that we have today, we have tomorrow. Um, there's a psychological healing aspect to this practice. And, and I want to talk about that. And it's directly related to enhancing uh, samadhi. So bear with me as I spin out a little, a little background. And that's why I have this here. This isn't just, this is emptiness. Um, but maybe that's a good Zen Dharma talk. I just come in and sit down and go. <laughs> Both in my own practice, my own experience, and working with students, um, I've witnessed many occasions where, in, in, especially in a long retreat, um, where a student is visited by past trauma. And trauma is a particular form of suffering. I've had that experience myself in, in, in retreat. Strong emotions and physical reactions, uh, they seem to come out of nowhere from events in the past. Um, when this happens, it's a challenge for sure. But it's also an opportunity for some healing to take place. If if we know how to work with it a little bit. So you hear this word trauma all the time, especially now we've got so many young people in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they estimate 30 to 40% 30 of those people, and maybe even more because their tours of duty are so much longer than any research they've done, that 30 to 40% of those people are going to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And they will be in our communities, and we will need to care for them. So let's look at some definitions of what trauma is. And this is from uh, Peter Levine, who um, is the creator of a modality for working with trauma called somatic experiencing that is designed to heal it. And um, I've trained in somatic experiencing, I'm very curious about this whole phenomena, and also with the hope that I might be able to help students here and there when, when things happen. So he says this, 
Trauma is an internal straitjacket created when a devastating moment is frozen in time. It stifles the unfolding of being, strangling our attempts to move forward with our lives. It disconnects us from ourselves, others, nature, and spirit. When people are overwhelmed by threat, we are frozen in fear. It is as if our instinctive survival energies are all dressed up with no place to go. And this next is a definition from the DSM-4, the Classification Manual for Psychotherapists. Some of you are therapists, you know all about this. And this is the definition for post-traumatic stress disorder. The person has been exposed to a traumatic event in which both of the following were present. Number one, the person experienced, witnessed, or was confronted with an event or events that involved actual or threatened death or serious injury or a threat to the physical integrity of self or others. Two, the person's response involved intense fear, helplessness, or horror. So basically what we're dealing with with psychological trauma is a potentially life-threatening event over which we don't have any control and to which we're unable to respond to effectively uh, no matter how hard we try. It's like a rock in a hard place. And theorists pretty much agree now that these traumatic events get stored in the body, in the nervous system, deep in the, um, in the deeper parts of the brain. And that somehow, um, during that event, in which we have normal discharge uh, after threat, um, it didn't happen. And so the energy gets locked away. And, and I should mention that during, during a life, everybody has some trauma, great or small. Uh, there's no way to get through a life without it. It just isn't designed that way. I wish it was. But. So it's a fact of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. As humans, we have the ability to unfreeze those frozen moments and move on with our lives. And what I liked about Levine's whole trauma theory, that it's all, it's all based on observing animals in the wild. Think about the food chain. Um, I mean, some animals spend a considerable amount of time under threat because they're somewhere in that food chain. Um, it's the old, you know, eat or be eaten, or eat and be eaten. Um, so the interesting question uh, that, that's posed is, why is it these, that these animals that are in the wild, subject to lots of threat, why are they so rarely traumatized? That's an interesting question. They're under a lot of threat. And it seems like they have a natural immunity uh, to traumatization. They have that in the wild. The animals that are held you know, in laboratories doesn't work so well. Kind of interesting, I'm not, you know, it's another question. But understanding our brother and sister animals, um, how they discharge that flood of energy uh, can help us work with our own locked up traumas. And when I was in this training, I saw a really interesting uh, video, part of the training showed us this video. And it was, they were going to uh, uh, do some measurements on a polar bear. They had to tranquilize her, and they were going to weigh her and take blood and all the things they do and put a collar on her. And so they're in the helicopter, and they got to tranquilize her, you know, and, and she's running full speed. She's having her flight response. And at the same time, she's turning her head towards the helicopter and snapping her jaws. So she's fighting and in, in flight at the same time. Well, they tranquilize her. They do all the stuff that, that they do. And then, they, then the film is very interesting because as she starts to come to, her legs start moving again. Like she's continuing, finishing. And her jaw is moving, you know. And she's barely coming into consciousness. She gets up and she shakes, she shakes, shakes. And then she's fine, she takes off. What naturalists have observed, and trauma therapists, you know, she was discharging 
that energy from the threat of, of the helicopter. And naturalists observe that when they, um, when they capture animals to check them for one thing or another, that's always threatening, it's always traumatic for the animal, that if they don't complete the discharge by some form of those movements as they're coming to, um, their survival rate plummets. And they kind of wonder, boy, that's interesting. And that's how this whole theory was put together, that without the discharge, uh, the animals don't thrive and they often don't survive. So there's a good outcome for this particular bear. She was doing everything she needed to do and shaking that energy out of her. She wasn't holding it in her body. So when we're faced with a threat, we fight, we take flight, or we freeze up. That's what we do as mammals. Um, and when, there's a, when there is a threat, our body gets, gets automatically ready for action. We don't have to think about it. The nervous system knows exactly what to do. I want to just draw you a, um, how a healthy nervous system works. And if you can't see it in the back, it doesn't matter, because I'll explain it as, as best I can. Let's consider this, this line here as kind of, and in here there's, this is our stream of life. Here's the water merrily going along, and we're, we're in, this, in this life. And as it is in any life, there's eh, little obstacles in the stream. Are you able to see the brown at all? Let me try black. There's little obstacles. There may be an obstacle or an, or an issue that we have to deal with that may have to do with relationships. Maybe there's another boulder in the stream that we have to navigate that has to do with finances. Maybe there's another one that has to do with health. They could be little boulders, our car breaks down, all kinds of things. And the way that, um, the way that we, um, the way that a, a normal, healthy, or a, let's just say a healthy uh, nervous system works, and this is called the autonomic nervous system, is that as we move along and we encounter, we encounter something that is an issue, we activate to deal with that issue. And that's the, that's the sympathetic nervous system. That's the kind of like a little bit of the accelerator. Okay, let's get ready, let's do something. And then after it passes, we relax, we regulate again, all within the bounds of what we call, we'll call this the, the range of resilience. And each of us have a different range of resilience. So it's all happening in here. We activate to meet something in our life. And then we relax, we chill out, and we go on down the stream of life. And that happens automatically. And this is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the break. It slows things down. We relax. All right, so that's the way it, uh, that's the way a nervous system is designed to operate. So let's look at a few, let's look at an example or two, maybe, you know, one example. Um, you're driving down the highway in your car. You're not paying too much attention. You're feeling good. You listen to some music or a Dharma talk on a CD player or whatever. And, uh, and all of a sudden you go by a speed trap. You look down, the needle's at close to 80, you know. Ever happened to you? You know the feeling? You know, that kind of rush of, oh my God. Um, so there's this activation that happens. That's the sympathetic nervous system kicking in. And there's some, there's some things that happen automatically with this. Heart rate jumps a little bit. Uh, respiration, blood pressure spike. Um, blood shifts away from the digestive system and into the muscles so it's ready for something. You know, it's like our ancestors when they see a saber-toothed cat, 
you know, all of a sudden they're walking along and all of a sudden, you know, it's the same reaction when we see a policeman in a speed trap. <laughs> Blood vessels constrict on, on the outer layers of the skin. Blood drains away. We get a little pale, a little cold, and that's, that's to prepare in case there's potential injury, that the blood's not there to bleed away. Um, pupils dilate. Uh, the eyelids kind of roll back a little bit. They retract. We're really onto it. Saliva and urine flow, they, they're inhibited. They stop. So that's that sympathetic nervous system. Bingo. Ready to go. Uh, the whole body is ready to boogie. It's, that's the accelerator. And it all happens like that. So back in the car, you know, you've, you've tapped the brake for who knows. We all do that. <laughs> Doesn't do much good. Um, and you're looking in the mirrors. You know, you're, you're alert. And then you catch a break. The policeman was on break. He was sitting there. He's eating a donut, reading the sports page. Your wallet is safe. You're safe. And your body begins to come back, begins to relax. It doesn't take that long. And so that relaxing, you know, your skin warms up again. Your breathing relaxes. You can feel your pulse go down. You've escaped. The saber-toothed cat didn't get you this time. Um, so that's the parasympathetic nervous system. And it all happens naturally. Um, the, we have this, it's, it's, it's a natural relaxation response. And, and when we're relaxed, uh, you know, all the muscles, of course, are relaxed. The heart rate slowed, the respiration slowed. The belly is calm. It's not agitated or jumping. And it's a peaceful mood. Now the problem with, the problem that we have, and you can see all the reasons for why it is like this, is that unfortunately the stress activation part, the sympathetic nervous system, that's so much more easily triggered than the relaxing one. That's the bummer. Now for, Back in the old days, that was really handy, being chased around by all these things that wanted to eat us. Not so much now. In, in, in most places, I shouldn't say, I mean, there are places on this earth where that the sympathetic nervous system is very handy. But it's, it's overworked in a lot of places. So that stress reaction happens automatically, but the... But the uh, parasympathetic reaction, the, the, the regulation, um, it doesn't happen as readily and it sometimes needs to be coaxed and, um, and, and, and brought, under, um, brought under guidance, so to speak. You know, when we're, when we're out in places that we really like, some people like the woods, some people like to be at the beach, well, then we get that natural relaxation. That's why we say, it's, oh, it's so, relax so relaxing. Um, but oftentimes in our lives, we don't, we're not in those kind of environments, our ideal environment like that. So we don't get that natural, um, we don't get that natural rela relaxation response as much. So you can see where I'm going with this. Now let's look a little more at, uh, at traumatic stress. This is a kind of the regular system in, when it's operating fine. Activate, regulate, activate, regulate. In a traumatic situation, some situation is, is introduced too fast or too soon, or it's too much for, our, for the banks of our resilient flow of life uh, to handle. And, and what happens is, some major event comes in. You know, it's, it's pretty intense. It's, it comes in and it crashes through the banks of our range of resilience. And when the sympathetic nervous system accelerates, it accelerates right out of that range. 
and, and there's a vortex, a trauma vortex, that's formed out of our range of resilience, and it doesn't come right down. The parasympathetic nervous system can't handle it, so we're stuck, you know, we're, we're stuck up here, and that's anxiety, you know, strong hyperactivity, rage, hypervigilance. There's, sometimes there's mania, elation, so we're stuck. Um, and sometimes when this is on full bore like that, it just takes a long time to regulate again. But it also, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system can overreact, slam on the brake, and then it comes down here, also out of our range, and we're frozen. We're deadened, we're depressed, we're dulled out, and we're stuck down here. So that's, these are the trauma vortexes that, that can happen when something is introduced to this system, uh, you know, very traumatically. And, and, you know, you can imagine all the things, and we probably all had one or more of them ha happen in our lives. This from Peter Levine. The very structure of trauma, including hyperaroused dissociation and freezing, is based on the evolution of the predator-prey survival behaviors. The symptoms of trauma are the result of highly activated, incomplete biological response to threat, frozen in time. By enabling this frozen response to thaw, then then complete itself, trauma can be healed. Trauma symptoms are not caused by the dangerous event itself. They arise when the residual energy from the event is not discharged from the body. This energy remains trapped in the nervous system where it can wreak havoc on our bodies and our minds. Wild animals have developed the ability to shake off this excess energy. The key for humans in dispelling traumatic symptoms lies in our being able to mirror wild animals in this way. Okay, so that's the little trauma theory 101. Let me give an example of how meditation practice can aid us in, in this work. Um, when I was on that long retreat last year, it was a wonderful experience uh, all the way through. But I was a couple months in, and, and I started having these painful sensations in my right arm. And it was, you know, tingling, and it felt like my skin was crawling. And especially kind of in the lower part, it was really kind of vibrating. Going, well, what is this? And of course, the mind jumps in, heart attack. Well, no, 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 that's the left. So the mind goes back and forth. Well. So the sensation had, had grown strong enough that I moved my attention from, you know, I was doing samadhi work, moved from there, and I was doing regular vipassana. I was kindly being, being with it. And it wasn't so bad or terrifying. It was very unusual, but I wasn't, I wasn't you know, so freaked out by it. So applying the gentle awareness and just kind of, kind of watching it, and it kind of intensified lower down until it was really, the energy was moving back and forth in the hand. You know, and then I got, there was this flash of this image, just one quick image, like a quick, you know. And I saw my father holding my arm down, and uh, okay, well then, that was it, that was just one image. I, it didn't quite make sense. And, and then eventually the energy starts moving out the fingers. So I'm watching it, watching it, watching it. Afterwards, feel kind of clear, took a while, an hour, something like that, feeling clear, a little tired. Uh, and I reflected on that image, and I remembered a particular event when I, was a, when I was a kid. I was about eight or nine years old, and I was windmilling my arms outside. I was playing, and you know, telephone poles, um, and, and the, the pole guys climb up there with their spiked shoes, and there's a lot of splinters. And I windmilled an arm, and a splinter went up in, under the nail back into the finger. So I was, you know, ah. So I ran in the house, 
And my father, you know, Mr. World War II vet, you know, he's seen all kinds of combat. He's, you know. So for him, it was like, okay, this is a field operation. <clears throat> so as usual, you know, he'd hold my hand here, bite on the towel. And then he, and then he tried to pull it out, and it broke inside. So it's not going to stop him. All right, so he, you know, gets a razor blade, cauterizes it, and, and so he cuts it, gets some tweezers, and pulls it out. So that was the experience. And so how many years later is that? That's a long time later. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden this is, this is happening. And I hadn't thought about that for decades, really. So I just concluded that with that little thread of evidence. It could be wrong, but that was what I, what I pieced together. But even if that flash of image, even if that image hadn't occurred, uh, the discharge would have happened. I didn't need to know any of the content. That wasn't important. And it was irrelevant. It was interesting, but it was irrelevant to what was going on. The body knew what to do. And being that relaxed for that period of time, it started to release things. So that's pretty much the, the it's, although I was just meditating, that's the same process with somatic experiencing. It's based on trusting the wisdom of the body, just like our meditation. That trust the wisdom of the body that, that it will unwind what needs to be unwound, if given a kindly acceptance. And so in trauma theory, there's an understanding that these events get locked really deep in the brainstem, in the reptilian area of the brain. It's, it's not available with the neocortex. We can't think our way out of it. And they've learned that the, the primitive nervous system operates seven times slower than our thinking processes. It's like a reptile sitting in there, and it's moving real slow. And so with somatic experiencing, the, 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 the process is a, it's a real slow work, basically, of mindfulness. And of course, it's the same thing with meditation. Slow and steady, slow and steady, no hurry. So one way to look at meditation is that we are cultivating, culti cultivating a, a kind of better balance between that sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. We're juicing up the ability to regulate, relax, restore, regenerate. And from that more relaxed focus, our heart more readily opens, where wisdom is more accessible. You know, sometimes when you're sitting and meditating, maybe you've already had this experience, well, all of a sudden there's like a, a little, you know, something, something, something releases. It's like the body gives off a little sigh, not maybe a real sigh, but like, we don't know what that is. My hunch is that it's, it could be little pieces of this and that that's stored in there that are, that are held and stuck. And so it's the healing capacity that's beginning to happen. So this modern psychological trauma theory in our practice dovetail perfectly. We're trusting the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the mind. Uh, the magic, if you will, the magic of nature to just do its thing. If we're patient and accepting enough, um, gentle enough. And as you turn your attention to the cultivation of samadhi, wise concentration, you're continually relaxing. It's part of this process. We stress it so much. you get to experience, in addition to some healing step-by-step step as we go through this, 
there's the experience of joy, some experience of contentment, experience of peace. And all the while, we're extending our range of resilience so that these, these vortexes, when we get hit by the obstacles of life, they're more and more within our range of resilience. Yeah, we activate a little bit, and we regulate. We activate, we regulate. So when you think about this body that we inhabit for these, for these years, By practicing like this, and we begin to have the opportunity to bathe in a little bit of joy, bathe in a little bit of contentment, bathe in a little bit of peace, what could be more restorative or healthy for an organism to get to rest like that? I have this sense that as science discovers more and more of the effects of meditation, that we might very well find that training the mind to rest in these highly concentrative states, these deep samadhi states, absorptions, jhanas, whatever you want to call them, will be found to have really profound health effects on, uh, on our health and well-being in all kinds of ways. They're already finding a bunch of them. So tonight I just wanted to share with you some of the elements of a ripened samadhi some of those characteristics. And I also wanted to point out the, um, some of the healing aspects of this work. You know, the, the benefits that you're getting every time you sit down, little bits here and there. These wonderful byproducts of this liberation training that we're involved in. Um, this virtuous cycle. Because you see, the Buddha, uh, again, once again, was on the mark when he said, the Dhamma is good in the beginning, right now. It's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. So let's sit together for a moment. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerge strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open, as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole, while learning to sing. Thank you for your kind attention. We've got about a half hour for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.